Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Andre Jeek. He is a successful YouTuber with nearly 1.5 million subscribers. His content focuses on cryptocurrency, investing and achieving financial freedom. I wanted to talk to him because I wanted to become an expert in Bitcoin. Not necessarily to become a crypto millionaire, but simply because people keep asking about it. I was once told that I had a bunch of Bitcoin given to me by someone. We don't know where it is or if it was even true. I don't remember it being true. Do you remember it being true, Django? I think it was shares and something. But I think that company might have been liquidated. It was a bit more tangential, wasn't it? It wasn't like we had a big bunch of Bitcoins, especially as they don't exist in physical form. But they do have somehow... Do people make tokens of them? I don't think so. Well, anyway, this conversation (laughs) with Andre Jeek will help help you to understand Bitcoin more. Because it certainly helped me. If you've not seen my YouTube video of me trying to understand even a child's uh, translation of the principles of cryptocurrency, have a look at that now. I've got some live shows coming up. The link to them is available. Well, how do you do it? Go to my website. Yeah, in the description. The link's available in the description, isn't it, Jen? Yeah. Go and come and see some of my live shows. There's my Shakespeare show, and I've forthcoming, I've got a live... I've got some live appearances. There's only a few in this country. 33, it's called. You know, I'm trying to antagonise people that think I'm a mason. What have you been doing then, Jen? I went to the pub. Why? Because I made new friends. Who? The better... Hello, Nate. <laughs> Nate, you've got a new friend called Nate. And Sophie, they run a coffee shop. What's Nate's jaw like? Fine. So you're not. He's not. He's a potential... going out with Sophie. So. Oh, I thought that didn't bother you. I thought you were offering yourself <laughs> no. up like a like a piece of They're... pork on a hook oh. to anyone on Tinder. No, no. Or Grinda. Grinder. Or Lucinda. <laughs> or Judge no. Rinda. No, these are nice people. So why would you not sleep with nice people? Because I, I don't. You think you deserve no, everyone, Trish? What? You think you deserve only to be with Trish? Trish? <laughs> Who's Trish? It's my wife saying trash. At oh, the moment, trash! No, but they're saying. a couple. I'm not gonna. No. Ah, oh, but you said he was willing to be the bit on the side. Remember that? For a that? couple who are looking for that. Banter decanter. This is the banter decanter. Not all couples. I thought you were going to aim yourself at all couples. I don't couples. fancy most people. I told you this. Well, all you require is that someone's got sort of a, a hexagon, hexagon for a chin, yeah. a Rubik cube jaw, and yeah. uh, thin. Then, then you're interested. And nice hair. What type of a nice hair? I used to like long hair. Now, what do you want? Then I thought, try the short-haired guys. No, bad idea. How did idea. that go? Bad. It's tricky life, short hair, long hair, all of the different types of hair that there are now to consider in this crazy old world. I've got my toucan mug. I saw like a hermit. I went to the, hey, I went to sea life. Do you know what sea life is? is, They're treated well. Well, I mean, they're trying their hardest, but I mean, it's never ideal, is it? No. Is there a penguin? The person that showed me around was very nice. Yeah, I did see a penguin. I see a bunch of penguins and they were okay. But I also saw a sign on the wall that said something about hermit crabs. And when I saw it, I thought of you. Yeah. And I thought, they don't have any hermit crabs in the sea life. Do you know why? Because <laughs> they left. Because <laughs> they said that it would be a waste of everyone's time and no. interest in hermit crabs. That's what they said. No. I asked the tour guide, why don't you have any hermit crabs? He goes, well, they're notoriously wretched creatures. No. I mentioned this only because it's Were there any they're too expensive, too exotic, too powerful, too beautiful to even consider including. Annoying. <laughs> They're an annoying bird with the big clacky banana beaks, aren't they? Let's face it. All right. And uh, oh, yeah, I took my kids out. That's good. Did you go to the pub? No, you don't take kids to a pub. I was they, taken to a pub. 
Yeah, I liked there it. in Ireland. I what do you have, it. crisps and a Coke? I'd have a little basket of chips and a Sidona. Where'd you... Sidona, what's that? <laughs> it's fizzy apple. <laughs> there you are, Jen, have your fizzy apple and keep quiet. So, it was great. It's my what, favourite thing. Where did you sit? Next to my dad. Oh, no. And he didn't put you outside in the car park? No. He let you roam free with the adults? Yeah, well, I'd sit quietly. I was a good child. Well, I don't know what the <laughs> hell happened. I really don't. Now, shall we move on to the comment section? Here's a jingle. Now time for comments. <laughs> Catherine Nalto. Hey, I think I've seen Catherine Nalto. Is she the new Steph Hoy? Where is actual Steph Hoy? <laughs> Get this man on again. So well spoken. Who's that? Oh, Nick Estes. He was good, wasn't he? Yeah. You didn't understand him. What? Didn't you say, I don't know what he's all about? No. <laughs> <laughs> I said he spoke with great clarity. It was very good. I don't think that sounds like something you'd say. He spoke with great clarity. He's very good. You never talk like that. You're too dismissive of people. Get this man on again, says our friend Catherine Nialto. So well spoken. And Lucy, thank you for drawing our attention to these flip sides. Jacinta Nicole, these sites are sacred sites, often used for healing. Same happens in Australia. No respect for the land or the people. We've gotten out of touch with the divine, haven't we? We've gotten out of touch with it. Skillfully Irish, Jen, you could learn something from this person. Outstanding interview, RB. Thanks so much for this. Definitely not MSM interview. Gets the real bones of the matter. Clappy hand, clappy hand, heart, heart. So there you go. There's some comments, Jen. Why did you select those ones? They were good. Didn't <laughs> didn't there any weren't there any words? I don't have criteria like they have to have a certain name well, clearly no I like, but what about if um, same as with your love life now what if <laughs> uh, <laughs> what we should get that poem off of Noel yeah, Fitzpatrick yeah where's my poem where's Steve Coogan you can forget that <sighs> Jay Leno no the chin of chins uh, there was a man born in Bethlehem he's known Steve as the Coogan chin has of a chins nice mouth. I don't want to talk about Coogan's <laughs> okay. mouth hole for God's sake. Right, let's do some listener shout-outs. Listener shout-outs. Dan Gilmore. I love the banter decanter. Thank you, Russell and Jenny May, for all you do. I recently listened to an older episode, pre-banter decanter, and was struck by how the whole episode was not so good without Jenny May's enchanting and angelic voice to add to yours as a warm-up for the amazing intellectual conversations. And that's from Dan Gilmore, <laughs> Bedlam Mental Hospital. <laughs> London, England, psych wing, do <laughs> no solids, keep locked up at all times. Thank you for your contribution, Dan. Liam Jenkins says, I've been an avid listener now since Under the Skin began. It's been quite a journey. I listen every Saturday while gardening. Thank you. And I can say that your talks have opened my mind exponentially. Your chat with Jordan Peterson was exhausting, but mind expanding at the same time. I was left feeling so emotional, but filled with hope that there are men out there like you making a difference. You have become a social and cultural barometer for me and I can't thank you enough. Please keep going and when the revolution comes, I'll be with you, comrade. Oh, God, Liam, I love you. I hope the gardening's going well. This is finally a sensible a sensible shout-out for someone. So that absolute man is from poor Dan Gilmore on a long road back to <laughs> mental health. Long odyssey, a long pilgrimage home for you, Dan. All right, let's go with Andre Jeek. Andre Jeek. Oh, Jeek. Dun-dun. Jeek. Say chic. Jeek. Say chic. Let's get Jix the Chic and uh, we'll learn all about Bitcoins, cryptocurrencies, all that jazz righty now then. Shall we? Yes, please. You ready? I'm ready. Are you going to invest? 
It's a lot of work, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah. Are you, you can... going to buy... Let's, should we do some as a competition? I keep asking Gareth. He keeps saying, no, like, I'll do the competition and I'll get bored of it. I should and I do it with Andre because they do live stream stuff. Do it with Andre. He can carry yeah. do the bird. Yeah, that's a carry good idea. Carry the bird. <laughs> carry the... <laughs> 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 anyway, let's listen to Andre and we'll be cleverer in a minute and that'll be nice, wouldn't it? Especially for Jen. Oh, hold on. Before we do that, Go and get Revelation, my Audible, uh, my Audible original. It's a very good book. It's excellent, I think, and you'll like it too. If you ain't signed up, to, if you ain't signed up, if you ain't signed up to the mailing list, if you ain't signed up, if you ain't signed up to the mailing list, sign up to the Alliance Clique mailing list. Go to russellbrand.com and have a listen to all of my look at my all my YouTube content. Some deep stuff going on on YouTube. Sign up to that and to the side channel stuff. And if you're not meditating yet on Above the Noise, which you have access to right now, you could go there, meditate now, then listen to Andre G. Go and meditate afterwards with Above the Noise. That's all of my promo done. Now let's get into Andre G. Jick. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Andre, thanks for joining me. I'm very grateful to you. Thanks for having me. Huge fan. I'm a fan of yours as well. People that are consuming this audibly on Luminary will not see that you are doing some close-up magic just as an <laughs> inadvertent way to sort of pass. Oh, my God, that's very cool. Thank you. Lots. I hope it's not too distracting. It's, it's, it's a nervous tick. It's a nice nervous tick. <laughs> it's, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of enjoyable, somewhat hypnotic and transfixing. Now, Andre, I've, because you are one of the most popular YouTubers on the subject of cryptocurrencies, and I've been trying to understand cryptocurrencies, mostly, I suppose, from a sociological and political perspective, i.e., are cryptocurrencies a way of, of bypassing or subverting conventional power or are they already to some degree beholden to conventional or traditional power structures? That's sort of, I suppose, where I'd like to start. But if you saw the video I already made on YouTube, you'll know the yep. level of awareness I'm operating at. A child's level, literally using <laughs> children's content to understand it. Well, sure. Let me ask you, do you have Bitcoin yourself? Do you own any? No, some people think I do because Max Kaiser at some point said that he'd given me some Bitcoin and me and the people that, that I still work with that I was working with at that time go, did he, did he? And then some of us think, oh, maybe there was some Max coin or something like that. Like he had his own one or whatever. And like we even went so far as to sort of almost berate ourselves for having let go of it. But we're pretty sure that if he gave us anything at all, because there was a physical embodiment, by the way, there was some token. Um, if he gave us anything at all, it was a... Um, some kind of uh, deviation from that, potentially his own brand, which I'm pretty sure I remember him having. In any event, whatever it was, I ain't got it anymore. So I've got no cryptocurrencies. Should I get some? Yeah, I think you should. Well, I, I will say that thank you for, for thinking that I'm a Bitcoin expert. I don't think I am. I just have a big following on YouTube <laughs> and that there are far smarter people than I am in the crypto space. But if Max Kaiser wasn't able to convince you, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to. <laughs> so I'll do my best. But I do think it is it is a way to subvert the traditional financial system. And I guess the biggest argument against it is centralization, right? Is it already centralized and owned by the billionaires and the big influencers and the banks maybe? And I think in order to understand the answer to that question, 
you have to look at Bitcoin in terms of its five pillars, right? There's actually five different aspects to Bitcoin that make it decentralized because centralization lies on a scale. It's not like a binary, yes, it's decentralized or, or yes, it's centralized. So the first pillar of that, I guess, of Bitcoin would be the miners, right? That's, that's, that's the one we all know. The, the people that are using their fancy computers, their ASICs, it's called ASIC chips, which are application-specific integrated circuitry. <laughs> right, it's well, just you know basically... that, the most basic one that we all know. That's where I, it begins to become vague and foggy for me. Like, you know, like when it was explained to me, people are doing complex mathematical equations on their computers, racing against each other in order to yield Bitcoin. I just conceptually found that very... I found it something that sounds so literal, difficult to access as a sort of a metaphor or something that's happening in a cyber dimension. Yeah, I think we're trying to use uh, more analog terminology to make yeah. it a little bit simpler. But I don't think we're mining in the same sense as we're digging for gold. It's a completely different process. But so the first pillar is, you know, are the miners who are using their fancy computers to mine these Bitcoins. And right now, they are making 6.25 Bitcoins at the rate of every 10 minutes. So every 10 minutes, there are 6.25 Bitcoins that are created in the space. And they are incentivized to keep the system secure and to keep it fair because they are getting these rewards. That's the first pillar of it. Now, there's a lot of criticism behind miners, like they're maybe evil or they're centralized in China or they're owned by really wealthy people and they, people can shut them down. So uh, I don't know if you do you have that concern. Are, did you look into that with miners? Well, I can see that anything that is superficially independent could actually be corralled. And I, I can understand that principle. It's not something I've looked into. Okay. So, so, so miners, I guess, are, are one pillar of that, right? Another How pillar... many people are doing that? Do we know? Yeah, there's nine, around 9,600 what are called nodes uh, on the system. So around 9,600, 9,600 individual entities that are using these computers to secure the network all around the world. And as far as we know, they're sort of operating independently. Well, the thing is, is uh, and, and this is a lot of the criticism that's coming out right now. I don't know if you saw, but there was news that just came out that China is trying to ban Bitcoin. And the price fell 25% today in a single day. And that's because a lot of people believe that Bitcoin is centralized to China. But the truth is, is that if you're a single miner, let's say I have these fancy ASIC computers, the odds of me and my computer solving a block and finding it to get my 6.25 Bitcoin reward is almost infinitesimally small. So in order to compensate for that, I have to join what's called a mining pool, which is a group of people that come together collectively to use their computing power to try to solve these blocks. That's the only way to increase your, your chance of, of becoming profitable. Otherwise, if you're by yourself, you're, you're, just, you're just paying for electricity. You're just not doing anything. And so when these miners release data as far as who's located where and 30% is coming from here and 40% is coming from there. The truth is, is here in Las Vegas, I can actually join, let's say, Antpool. That's one of, a, one of a, the largest Chinese mining pools. So I can join Antpool from here in Vegas 
and contribute to the hash power that is in China. And when these miners release their data, it looks as though it's all centralized in China. But the reality could be that there's people all over the world from, from China, from Germany, Switzerland, Russia, wherever they are, contributing to the security of this network. So that's kind of the difficult part of knowing where Bitcoin really actually is, is it's clustered. It's clustered, and I suppose because it is taking place in a non-geographical space, but at least in conventional terms, an abstract digital world, the geography is not super relevant. I mean, why why is it regarded as being sent? Why is that Ant one regarded as being in China at all? Because one person is, because it's been registered there. What 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 is the significance of it even being registered in China? Yeah, the significance is that people are afraid that China will use its government governmental power to dictate policy. Maybe they'll shut miners down. Maybe they'll say, hey, guys, no more Bitcoin. So people are afraid that it seems as though China has a lot of power over Bitcoin. Does it is it possible that China could either either prevent it being spent in territories that it controlled or being created in territories that it controlled or both of those things? Just one of those things, just spent and used. They could try to prevent it. But the reality is miners, it, it's such a fluid concept that these people are not necessarily corporations. They could move anywhere they want because they're always financially incentivized to go to a place that suits them the best. So if I'm a miner in China and I have millions and millions of dollars of these computing, computer equipment, I could just move my stuff somewhere else and continue onward. So it's kind of a null point. China is not really that important in that case. What is the significance and necessity for the complex equation-based blockchain component? You know, because the thing that's most attractive about it for me is, oh, it's decentralized, it's outside of government control, it's outside of the normal financial markets and regulatory industry, and, and therefore, at least hypothetically, could be accessible to people that would usually be denied access. But couldn't you, by virtue of that, just have a finite, pool of resources that didn't was not backed by any kind of computer activity but was just an agreed upon bartering system i suppose what that would mean that you'd have to buy those units of currency with a real currency at some point and so it would therefore be tethered to a degree to real financial exchanges but like a lot of people obviously by definition are acquiring bitcoin in the same way that they would acquire any currency with you know a second or native currency so what is the importance and indeed necessity of the crypto component that mathematical bit the way that i understand it is it's because it's a way to control the supply and inflation of bitcoin so for example when uh, people are mining Bitcoin and there's a lot of miners, the difficulty of the network becomes extremely high. And this is to control people from not just extracting all the Bitcoins from out of the blocks all at once. Because the truth is, Bitcoin will be mined totally, 100% of it, in, in the year, I believe, 2140. So about 120, 119 years from now is when Bitcoin will be extracted from the network. And partially the reason for that is to control the supply of inflation. So it's a process of getting them. That suggests that it is not an abstract ideological thing, but there is a physical thing that's sort of finite and has a termination. Like which Absolutely. What is that yeah, thing? But 
That the physical thing? Yeah, what is the thing that runs out? Why can't you carry on and do it for another hundred years? Well, because it's a limited fixed supply, right? Who's by what by virtue of what? Because gold is fixed. Because eventually, you've mined all the gold. There's no gold left now. That's the end of that. But That's not true. We can find gold on meteorites. So, <laughs> this is the <laughs> to come up with a concept to fi find something fixed in a finite supply is extremely difficult. Even in the world of gold, we're extracting it from somewhere, and we can always find more what of it in the water? universe. About water. I mean, what you say, what rain or filtration? Sure. Are we talking about intrinsic value now? <laughs> well, no, we'll get to intrinsic value. But first I want to say, is is that okay. is that thing of it's going to run out of this date, is that an objective fact or is that a sort of a consensual decision that's been somehow made? It, it should be an objective fact because, like I said, when miners are mining the network and there's a lot of people, the difficulty increases. And the reality is if people abandon Bitcoin, let's say tomorrow, 99%, every 10 minutes, the difficulty of those blocks readjusts. And so if there's nobody mining it, if there's less people, the, the difficulty decreases substantially. So it again, financially incentivizes at least someone out there to continue extracting their coins. I see. So that keeps the game in motion. Who determines... Exactly. Uh, like I know it's, uh, I appreciate that it's probably a set algorithm that responds to usage, but who determined that original algorithm? Is this the mysterious nom de plume uh, creator <laughs> of it? Yeah, so this is the Satoshi Nakamoto character who nobody knows who it is. I mean, There's that's people amazing. that claim that they know. It's, a, it's, nope. it's like Banksy, and it literally is a Banksy. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Maybe it's Banksy, but it's it's either a, a, a person, but the likelihood it's it's a group of people that did it. And our most likely candidate of who it was is no longer around and he's no longer with us, unfortunately. His name was Hal Finney. He was one of the, I guess, biggest people that, that people thought perhaps could have been Satoshi Nakamoto. What do you think is the idea behind the anonymity? Well, the idea is... And this is, I think, why you can never recreate Bitcoin again and why I don't think any other cryptocurrency will be as relevant and as powerful as Bitcoin is because the idea of anonymity is becoming extremely difficult. And Bitcoin was the last crypto that launched that, or the first, I'm sorry, that no one really knew who the creator was, which means no one can attack who this person is. No one can attack their morals, their beliefs, whatever it is about them. You don't know who this person is because they're no longer around and they're not alive because if they were, they would have long extracted the value because it was worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So it's it's just this fictional character that's no longer with us anymore. Well, that's just extraordinary. So, so you say the value of the anonymity is to avoid personal sort of slander and attack, but... But say like elsewhere in the world of tech and perhaps there's nothing, obviously there's nothing directly comparable, but, you know, like Elon Musk could be anonymous and not have to take the hits he takes, but he isn't. I mean, what was the, what, what, what kind of bit of foresight 
was granted to that person that they thought I'm just going to do this thing anonymously and sit back. I mean, is is that sort of a common ethos in in this kind of world where anonymity and online identity, uh, you know, it's sort of from the hacker world is a kind of I don't know cultural. Yeah, I guess that's a big part of it. But someone like Elon, I think he he was on the cusp of creating Bitcoin. He created PayPal. Perhaps if he was anonymous, he would have been able to get away with it. So PayPal was supposed to be this digital peer-to-peer cash kind of a system. But because it's a corporation, it's beholden to the laws and policies and regulations and rules of our government. But with Bitcoin, since there is no central authority and we don't know who the creator is, there's no one to persecute. There's no one to come after and say, hey, shut it down or we're throwing you in prison. If at some point it did become, hey, you're doing really well, Andre. I'm really starting to understand it better. Um, Thank you. If government regulators decided to prohibit Bitcoin use, then that would, in effect curtail its value so that and because and if it does become a meaningful threat that is what will happen so then what is its value unless you get it now and spend it on you know houses sure that's that's a incorrect assumption so what you <laughs> <just> said <laughs> so so yeah no but it's a good it's a good it's well a then good why are they worried about a china lot. then mate right, well so here's the thing with with countries banning currencies or really anything the most of what they're actually doing when they ban things is they're running an ad marketing campaign for the currency. That's all they're doing. Because when one country bans whatever it is, whether it's crypto or a product or anything else, there are dozens of other countries in this world that will happily accept this crypto or this form of payment or product or whatever it is because every country wants to incentivize economic growth whether it's they'll, they'll give favorable taxes or they won't tax it at all. There's some countries in this world that won't even tax Bitcoin. They're like, hey, come, all of you miners, come live here. We're going <laughs> to allow you to build your businesses here. We're not going to tax you. And so where China or the U.S. bans crypto, I promise you there's going to be dozens more to replace it. It's like a hydra. You cut off one head, there's three more that pop up. So then why, conversely then, why was it concerned when the idea of Chinese regulation or a ban, why did the Chinese ban affect the value of Bitcoin then? Because people just don't understand the intricacies of how it works. And when they think of centralization, they think, China has some sort of fundamental control over the technology. But the reality is, like I said, there's the five pillars. So we went over oh, yeah. the miners. We've done one pillar. Yeah, we've I done one. Because I had to stop so you so many miners. times. That's like when someone <laughs> tried good. to explain quantum physics to me. And like he, about half hour in, he goes, I've not even got to the complicated bit yet. <laughs> like he hadn't talked about wave particle and the the influence of the String observer. theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, why, theory. why is there slits in that? What do you mean two slits? What for? <laughs> Who did it? <laughs> How many dimensions? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so the next pillar is is the developers. So the developers are the people that kind of oversee the technology itself. They're the they're the nerds that that sit on the computer and write all the code, and that's that's the developers. And so a lot of people take that uh, and they they misunderstand that, and they say, well, could, couldn't they just code more Bitcoin into their own wallets? Like, what stops them from doing that? And the reality is, like I said, it's like an ecosystem where everyone has an equal vote, sort of an equal vote. And the developers are just part of that. So if the developers wrote a code that, for example, gave them Bitcoin for free, 
the miners would disagree with them, the nodes would disagree with them, the businesses, everyone else would signal that that's not okay and it would never get passed and the miners would never use their voting power to let that get through. I see. But all they're doing is, yeah, so all they're doing is they're maintaining the network. If it's something like, happens, they... It's like if it was a pool mm -hmm. of water, if they if the coders did that, it would be like a dye appeared in the water that would be observed exactly. to everyone who could see the water. You couldn't do it discreetly and invisibly. Right. That's a beautiful analogy. Thank yeah, you. See, exactly analogies right. I can do. <laughs> that's a beautiful one. Yeah, so that's that's developers. Um, they're an important part of the ecosystem. And then there's the nodes. So nodes are the third pillar. And nodes, anyone can be a node. So every miner is a node, but not every node is a miner. Does that make sense? Well, not yet. Every miner is a node, <laughs> but not every node is a miner. So there are so all That's miners are a node, but there are some nodes that aren't miners. What are they? Correct. They're people that download the entire ledger, the distributed ledger that people are talking about that Bitcoin is, which is just a record of all the transactions that have ever transpired on the network. And so you could do this right now. I could do this. You just download some file. You set it up. It's not exactly straightforward, but you can follow a tutorial on it. You probably get it done in 10 minutes. You download the whole thing. Did you still and think you that run it on your this computer. far into the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you could download it and you could run it. People run it a couple hours, six hours a day, let's say. And all you do is you're basically verifying transactions on the blockchain. Your computer does that automatically. So you're a participating player on the Bitcoin network and the ecosystem, basically. What's the advantage? Now, what's the advantage? Doing that. So you're basically securing the network. You're helping contributing to the strength of, of the network. Do you get anything and personally? So there are businesses... Typically, no, because you're not mining. Not You're not always a miner, let's say. You could be a node that doesn't necessarily have these fancy computers. You just have a normal MacBook Pro. So you won't get compensated for that. But there are businesses that are building business models around compensating people for doing that. Oh. So we're still in the, the development stage of doing that. But yeah, you can download it, let it run, and now you're a player on the network. Which means in the future, let's say a developer proposes some sort of change to the Bitcoin network. As a node, you kind of have a say, even if you're not a miner. I suppose a non-mining node is like a child and a miner is like the parent, right? The node can scream and like, no, I don't want this change. But it's the miners that are the parents that get to decide. So the nodes can still communicate. So if you and I were a node and we heard that developers are doing something sketchy, we could be like, uh, we're going to signal to you that this is not okay. And so they know what to do or what not to do. Because remember, everything is based on financial incentives. Nobody wants to screw anyone because the moment they do, the value of the network drops. So it's all finance incentives. So it's sort <laughs> that, of holistically held to account by itself. That's cool. I get that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so those are the nodes. And like I said, there's around 9,600 nodes at the time of this video right now. And then we have the fourth pillar, which are the businesses, right? These are the corporations, the brokerages, the people who make the wallets, the, the physical products, whatever it is, it's, it's the businesses within the ecosystem. They have a say too, kind of like, I suppose in our, in our traditional system, the corporations might lobby politicians, right? So I'm sure they have some sort of an effect to, of where they work closely with either developers or miners to make sure things are working properly. So they have a say as well. That's and cool. then there's the fifth pillar. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I'm really understanding it now. 
And then there's the fifth pillar, which are the users. And that's you and I, people who buy, sell, trade, believe in it. And we have a say too, because if without us, Bitcoin would kind of also be worthless. And that's the pillar that's kind of holding Bitcoin glued together. I love it. Thank you for explaining it. So because of number, like because of the fifth pillar, the users, and to a degree, a great or a lesser degree, all of the pillars have some kind of relationship to reality, whether it's the developers and their dependency on sort of tech, that most of that tech is developed, I imagine, by, you know, if, if it's not Apple, if it's a more esoteric version of computer tech, still tethered to reality through that. The miners are using that equipment, the nodes are using that equipment, the businesses are sort of using templates that are from the, you know, the business world as we understand it and transferring it via technology into this new space. But the users, like, yeah, if I was now to just to take a gamble and spend in, you know, a thousand pounds on Bitcoin or whatever number, that I'm transferring that from, you know, the accepted ordinary world of currency into this new economic paradigm. So do, do you, does that, do, do the numerous relationships to conventional finance not tether the ecosystem to normal financial systems in spite of the decentralization and the inability of conventional regulatory forces to intervene? Say that again, but slower. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's so okay. inherently connected to the outside sure. world, because, you know, it, the broader context of Bitcoin is the world and even perhaps more specifically the financial and tech world. And those two sure. of those, they are uh, deeply embedded in the financial power structures of the conventional financial world. And because the users are all in the normal world and will be using finance like currencies from the normal world, does that not mean that it's not in it's not an entirely parallel system, but is kind of in tandem to ordinary economics, sort of connected? One hundred percent, one hundred percent connected. And as Bitcoin grows larger, it becomes more integrated into the system because then we introduce derivatives, right? We're introducing lending. People start borrowing money and then corporations let lend that money to other corporations, which might have looser standards. And that's something that me and my friends on YouTube in the finance world are trying to talk about, which is uh, the, the biggest issue really right now is we have no idea how many of, I suppose, derivatives are over marginalized and under collateralized. So it's money that's essentially borrowed that may not necessarily be on the balance sheets of the corporations that are letting people borrow this money. And if the price of Bitcoin tanks extremely hard, like it did today, this could trigger what's called a margin call, where everybody is forced to sell their positions. Everybody's forced to sell Bitcoin to pay for the money that they borrowed. When this happens, a lot of people will convert their money into what are called stable coins. Stable coins are kind of like a dollar is a stable coin. For every dollar you give a corporation, they create one stable coin. And there's lots of different ones, like you may have heard of Tether, USDC, whatever it is. There's lots of different ones. And so when people leave to these stable coins during this collapse, what brokerages have a tendency to do to control the system is they freeze withdrawals, right? Because they want to slow everything down. They're like, guys, don't panic. We're just going to freeze everything for a couple days. But when that happens, people may lose faith in these stable coins because what good is my stable coin being worth a dollar if I can't even withdraw it? 
And then you have a potential collapse of the stablecoin value. And if that happens, then people lose faith in the entire system. And that's going to cause a multi-year bear market. The problem is, is neither I nor any of the friends that I have on YouTube or anyone we're talking to have any data on this, on this point. We have no idea how many of these loans outstanding are under collateralized and over marginalized. So no idea. Over collateralized, under marginalized. These loans are like they're Bitcoin loans. Can you explain to me what derivatives means in this context? My only understanding of derivatives is from like 2008 crash. Sure. A deri- yeah. yeah, I'm not the best person to explain this technically, but derivatives are just concepts that gosh, how do I <laughs> how do I explain derivatives? Um, it's it's essentially let's say if I like I said, deposit a dollar into a brokerage, right? Now they, they can lend that dollar to someone else who can lend it to someone else who can lend it to someone else. And now we're trading with Fugazi money. It's not real. It's just based on something, which is maybe based on something else, which is based on something else. And before you know it, it you're not left with anything. It's kind of like the fractional reserve banking system, right? It's the same idea. Same idea. It's fantastic. Andre, can I ask what is your uh, what is your background and how have you come to be in this position and where do you stand personally on Bitcoin? I know that you've already indicated in our conversation that you you know you see it as unique. Do you invest in it? Do you spend it? Like, can you just explain that and explain how you got into this stuff just personally? Oh, sure. I got into finance because my parents were horrible with money. <laughs> They're immigrants. So well, I, I came from Russia. I'm a circus kid. I used to travel with no. my parents. They used to be. You're a yeah. circus kid? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what did they actually do? You've been fooled. Like, Oh, that's beautiful. Sorry? What did you, What were your parents' roles? Uh, they did uh, aerial gymnastics. No so kind of way. like acrobats. You're acrobats. In, yeah. Your mum and dad are acrobats. So, yeah. so you've run away to join the financial <laughs> industry. Yeah, no, I, I was going to be a part of, of, of their thing as well. I was going to be a performer. But I, I hated gymnastics. I was horrible at it. And my dad showed me a magic trick when I was like six years old and I fell in love with magic. So I started doing magic tricks when we came to Vegas. We had to settle down. My dad got invited for, uh, by Cirque du Soleil to come to Vegas. I had to start going to school. And I was like, I love this magic stuff. I don't have to do gymnastics. Gymnastics is really hard. <laughs> so I started taking up magic and cardistry, got hired by a startup company that I helped grow. And then eventually I was really unhappy with where I was financially and I was like, how do I take these random blend of skills with my love for performing, my love for cinematography? Because magic and cardistry had led me down a path of cinematography where I love to make fancy, crazy videos and editing. And I would get good at that. But I was also obsessed with money because my parents were immigrants that got themselves neck deep in debt. They didn't understand how credit cards worked, how loans worked when we came to America. So I was forced to teach myself because my parents weren't teaching me and I wasn't surrounded by anyone in finance. So I had that skill, I had finance, I had cardistry, and I just had all these random blends of, of skills that I didn't, I knew no one's going to hire me for. So in 2019, not 2017, I left my job, my stable $50,000 a year job. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to give myself two years to do YouTube. I don't know why anyone would ever watch me. I don't have a ton of money. And I didn't at the, at the, at the time I had very little relatively speaking to people who talk about finance and I didn't have fancy cars and, 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 and Lamborghinis and castles that I could be like, Hey, follow me. I'm really smart and successful. So I was like, Hey guys, this is all the money I have. This is how much I make. 
here's what I think about investing. <laughs> and that's essentially how I grew the channel. That's brilliant. So it started off with invest. It's a lovely story. It started off with investment through like the stock market and the kind of conventional investment. And I was like, what is it like with investment? And I'm trying to, of course, draw a comparisons between your interest in magic and illusion and investment which i know does involve things like sort of bluff faith belief you know like and, and sometimes in the financial world downright skullduggery what like uh, what is it that under what do you think gave you some i don't know intuitive or instinctual capacity around investment and um, i mean i'm sure did you presumably you had some success in order for the charity for the channel's veracity to be proven well not necessarily no i, I don't people claim didn't care if you lost all your money no well it's not that i don't care it's just that i don't claim to have any sort of knowledge beyond an ordinary person i'm just sharing my financial journey to financial freedom and helping people along the way who want to achieve financial independence and in the context of that i'm very transparent about how i make money where i invest it it may not always be the most successful investment but it's just my personal journey to it and i guess one of the reasons behind why that is is because i'm seeing this democratization happening in this world that kind of for me happened in 2008 which is when i graduated high school and i saw uh this democratization process of the filmmaking industry where uh before 2008 Making a movie was impossible. You had to have film, you had to have a ton of money. It was impossible to be a filmmaker. In 2008, Nikon released a camera called the Nikon D90, which was like this DSLR camera that they put a video chip inside of. And now you could have this crazy looking video where you're in focus and your background's blurry, just like real movies. And that sparked this crazy industry of people, YouTubers, of people making movies for nothing, for just a cheap budget. And it was a democratization of filmmaking. And then I saw a democratization happening in physics with Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, gosh, who else? Carl Sagan, all, the, all these guys that are making these complex mathematical ideas visually possible to understand for the ordinary person. We had that in physics. We had that in, in the sciences. And then the next one we had, it was in politics where you had, uh, gosh, who, who did we have in politics that we had? Sort of like comedians, the John Olivers, the, the John Stewarts, right? The Trevor Noahs, where you made politics and news be a fun subject that you and I could just have an ordinary conversation and kind of somewhat vaguely understand what's going on in this world. So we had filmmaking, we had cinematography, we had the sciences, we had politics. And I feel like that revolution hasn't really happened in finance yet. And I would really love to see it happen in that to make it understandable for normal ordinary people and that that's my i guess my reason behind it perhaps it requires a kind of i mean i think that's a, a, a good objective but doesn't the world of finance require a degree of opacity in order to maintain its own sustenance and continued success i.e it can't be democratized it's inherently a democratic i think the knowledge can be and i think it isn't right now but you're right that that ownership over assets has never been and probably never will be democratized, just like it can't be with Bitcoin. So that's a form of way of criticizing Bitcoin and saying that it's centralized because it's owned by the billionaires and it's owned by the wealthiest people. But that's true of any asset class, whether that's real estate, whether that's stocks or anything, because 
it makes sense that the most intelligent and the most resourceful, richest of people will have access to all of those assets. Yes. And what about like also, Andre, in 2008 was, of course, like the, this seismic economic collapse that precipitated a kind of cultural and economic shift, which we're sort of still seeing bear fruit today. And how were you impacted by that? And what did you think about that? How does the sort of 2008 crash and what that's created in the, this, in the political world, i.e. sort of the rise of populism, which of course, in a sense, is a good thing, but some people would argue ethno-nationalist populism, and also a kind of a kind of concretization of total mistrust in the kind of industries or at least worlds in which that you're talking about democratizing that like these are sort of in a sense the, the absolute apex of uh, of hierarchical and centralized corruption and i think much of the appeal of cryptocurrencies is, as i can read it at least sort of uh, phenomenologically should we say like it is because it's oh this is outside it's an alternative it's a way out it's a way for ordinary people to get involved in this stuff you know with the intention of course of improving their own lives i just wonder what you well what's yeah what's what's interesting is the first block that was ever mined on bitcoin had a memo attached to it which said chancellor on the brink of bailout so that was for the english banks so that was the first memo that was attached to the Bitcoin block. So 2008 was really the conduit for creating Bitcoin. And I mean, for me personally, I was just graduating high school, so I wasn't really thinking about it much. My parents bought a house. <laughs> you were a little boy. <laughs> yeah, my, my parents were buying a house at the time, which I was helping them with, but it was what gave birth to Bitcoin. And what, what's interesting to me is that, and, and, and maybe I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist here when I think about this, but when, when it comes to the tra tra traditional system right now, I just feel like we've we've never existed in a time where we've had an alternative to what's going on right now to the current system. We've never had an economic recession to a, a large degree to the point where we had an alternative to go to, to a different asset class like a crypto, which is largely why the pandemic made Bitcoin so valuable. It was a, it was a big part of why, because we had this crazy recession and people didn't believe in the government. And in the future, I'm wondering if the government has a lot more incentives and the central banks have a lot more incentive to keep this game of musical chairs going for as long as possible and quantitative easing of printing this infinite amount of money because we can't collapse. If we do, when we rebuild that new system, it is not going to be based on the current system of today. It's going to be based on the digital aspects of what we have right now, governed by smart contracts, not by people. And so I'm wondering if it's a little bit of an incentive for them to keep this game going as long as possible. Because if I'm in government, I'm a senator, maybe I'm a politician, whatever I am, I'm old, I'm nearing retirement, I wanna leave, I wanna have a good retirement in peace. I don't wanna retire during a recession. I'm gonna continue going as long as possible, irresponsible quantitative easing for as long as humanly possible. So that, that, that's my theory for why we're gonna continue going and perhaps never see a crazy recession like we've had before because we've never lived in a world where we've had an alternative. And I think that scares a lot of people. That scares a lot of the central bankers. Do you, so, okay, so you started your channel with, um, by acquiring, you know, like by sort of just transparently 
tracking your own financial transactions and activity and this has led you to bitcoin so what if i may ask because i'm english and asking someone about money is very very rude but what is your <laughs> sort of current position with uh, bitcoins do you buy it do you, what do you do do you own yeah i know i you know if i wasn't recording my my voice here I, I would show you my portfolio but i do have about nine bitcoin right now and i have about 90 ethereum so those are the, my two my two biggest ones and i continue to buy it i'm gonna i actually bought some today during the dip because everyone is scared and they have no idea what's going on so you for but low, i'll continue buy low sell high yeah no <laughs> the idea is not to sell that's the whole point of Bitcoin, buy low right? don't sell yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah there are no lows no highs only doge <laughs> oh, wow mate what is nine bitcoin worth what is nine Bitcoin worth right now? Let me check. Uh, let's see, nine times 40, I'm guessing 360. And what about Ethereum? What What are they? And like, cause you know, like in the comments say, you say I done, you saw my, uh, you know, my B Bitcoin for mice video that I made so that mouses can understand it. Well, like there was sort of some comments that I wanted to like, you know, give to you because you'd be obviously better qualified to handle it. Like this guy, Chris Calver. Hello, Chris. He said, it's not a simple subject, but there are three words to get to grips with and the connotations of the depth of meaning in this context. Oh, look at Chris. He knows the score. He says, borderless, trustless, as in none is ever required, and permissionless. Ask Andre about those. So, uh... What does he mean? But borderless, I suppose I understand it. It's not like it's not contained by a centralized or nationalized thing. Trustless, it's an intelligence of a digital thing, so it doesn't, it can't be corrupted by a human. Because you explain that to me, like if the, hold on a minute, let me check my pillars. Wait, Andre, <laughs> developers. If one of the That's developers right. went, let's change it. That you, even even the nodes that are like children would spot a thing like that, and they'd be up in arms. Uh, and permissionless. I don't understand the value of that word. Do you agree with the, Chris's assertion that, that that's a key principle? Yeah, I think you you answered the question. <laughs> you All answered right. it yourself. Yeah, it does. It requires no permission, and and I think that that I guess the the bigger reason why per permissionless is so important and the way to understand it is, uh, unlike corporations, they don't have to ask permission from our governments, right? Whereas with Bitcoin and crypto, we don't we don't need to ask for permission. Corporations do. They need permissions from the government to operate whatever way they choose to operate. They have to follow set rules and guidelines. With crypto, there, there is no asking for permission in the same way that the way the internet works today, there is no off switch. The internet doesn't need permission from anybody to exist. It just does. It's kind of like the Pandora's box has been opened. Same idea with Bitcoin. It requires no permission from the government to exist and operate. And when the new financial system is going to be rebuilt, whenever that is, if we ever get this collapse, Bitcoin will not need to ask for permission to be what replaces it with. It just will because it's already built and it's already being built. And so when it's ready, people just migrate over to what is technologically more superior. It doesn't need permission. That's what it means. Right, it's kind of uh, like cyber Darwinianism. It will sort of, ta it's yeah, detached exactly. from human intervention in a sense other than its initial creation. I understand that. Now a new thing that's starting to come to my mind 
is that if this does become a genuine threat to the most powerful interest in the world, why would they not oppose it or control it, i.e. JP Morgan, uh, the International Monetary Fund... You know, that, that sort of like yeah, Deutsche Bank, all the money, like, wouldn't they just go? We need to shut this shit right down. Like, it, it, wouldn't that be possible? Should they decide to do it in conjunction with <laughs> the support of like major markets? No, they'd love to, but you know, uh, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, has been a huge, huge, hugely against Bitcoin, and his tune has kind of changed over the years. And my theory is that it's the banks that are actually buying now. Really? They haven't announced it yet. They haven't announced it yet, but I think they've been buying and uh, they've been manipulating the price a little bit just, just to get in. And I don't think they've announced it officially yet, but if they were able to shut it down, they would have done so a long, long time ago. So you can't, there's no prognosis for what would happen if China, the United States, Russia, the EU nations and Britain all banned it you know, like in conjunction with the Gulf states, you don't think that that, like if that happened, like you can't spend it in any of these territories, do you think there's just enough that the sort of secondary economy that already exists is sufficient? Or if you could be persecuted for, you could be arrested for owning it, you could be arrested well, for trading in it? Well, you just mentioned a couple of superpowers that I suppose hate each other. So I don't think they'd ever work together in conjunction to ban something. Where one bans it, whether it's China, the U.S. will accept it. If U.S. bans it, China will accept it. That's right, just what's going to happen. You think it just gives each other, an, it gives them a sort of a territorial advantage. You think that it's like mutually assured destruction. It's like got a, almost a nuclear component. That's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the difference then with something like a theory, like the other one you said, Ethereum, which again is one of those ones I saw mentioned in the comments and stuff. Oh man, that's a whole separate conversation. Is it? <laughs> that's what a whole separate it's podcast. Is it, is it needs its own podcast? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but is it, isn't it just the same sort of idea? It's mining, it's pillars, it's nodes. No, not really. Oh, no. Not anymore. Not anymore. It used to be. It used to be, but it changed into a different consensus model. So there's, there's two consensus models within crypto. There's something called proof of work, and there's something else called proof of stake. Whoever makes the most delicious steak wins. No, it's a it, proof of stake just means whoever has the money locked up gets to vote. So within Bitcoin, I gave you the five pillars of people who sort of vote on what happens in Bitcoin. Mm. On Ethereum, the people who get to vote are the people with money. But again, a whole separate, separate discussion. So it's just a consensus model is basically a way to secure a crypto. It's what makes it safe and secure. How do you make sure that everybody in the network, every player, is going to be honest with what they're doing. How do you not double spend? How do you prevent, you know, cyber attacks from happening? And those are the two consensus model. One is proof of work with the Bitcoin miners and the other is proof of stake. So like, have you got a long-term financial plan? I.e., I'm going to get this much Bitcoin, I'm going to get this much Ethereum, then I'm going to open a, oh, the irony, a circus. <laughs> <laughs> and then retire as a performer. <laughs> That'd be awesome. No, I actually do have a goal to get 21 Bitcoins because then I would be a millionth. <laughs> so it would be a fraction, right? One one millionth. Since there are 21 million Bitcoins that will ever exist, which, by the way, fun fact, there are 42, 43 million millionaires out there in the world. So if every millionaire in the world today decided to buy a Bitcoin, there would not be enough one Bitcoin for every millionaire in the world. But... 
where was I going? You're saying <laughs> totally that you want to be a one millionth heir. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Millionth heir. So one one twenty one, right? There's 21 million Bitcoins out there. If I own 21, that's like one one millionth. So I'm a millionth heir. So, but do you have a financial plan beyond like just something that's a laugh to say? Like, and then would you invest in it beyond that, Andre? For sure, for sure. Um, So that's that's what I talk about on my YouTube channel, right? It's it's called uh, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called Fire. Have you heard of this movement? It's financial independence and to retire early. It's this group of obsessive people who talk about money and finance and who want to retire in their twenties and their thirties and not have a job. And the goal is to have your passive income meet your expenses. When the two meet, then you've hit that threshold. Cool. And at that point is when you don't have to have a job anymore. And the goal is to have your investments at the 4% withdrawal rate to equal your expenses. So if I have a million dollars invested at 4%, I can make $40,000 a year passively, and that'll cover most of my expenses. So if I can invest a million dollars at at least 4%, I could theoretically retire, assuming that my expenses were $40,000. So the way to calculate it for normal people, by the way, just to nerd out, is to take your monthly exp- to take your yearly expenses and multiply it by 25. That's how much money you need invested, generating at least 4% to be able to not have a job. So you've got to accumulate 25 times that expense. That's cool to know that. It seems to me that a lot of what underwrites this is a kind of a yearning for freedom. Now, if you'd like to know about the kind of content that I make, really what I'm interested in is alternative systems of power, new ways of people being um, autonomous in their own lives, independent, independent culturally, ideologically, religiously, but people running their own collectives, running their own resources. And when you say that this, like the fire movement that, you know, that you're a part of, and even when you explain your own um, objectives, it's like really what you want is freedom. And of course, that is because of the world we live in is tethered to like a financial imperatives. So, I mean, I can see how cryptocurrency is a parallel system that's not so beholden to the centralized forces of, say, banking or national governments. And that gives it an advantage over typical uh, systems of wealth. But as you've already covered in our very articulate conversation, uh, thank you, you've uh, that ultimately assets will be controlled by people with the most resources. So in a sense... It perpetuates the kind of individualistic ideology that prevails in other areas of life, i.e. get yourself out of there quickly, you know, or expediently, if not quickly, rather than radically changing the world by acquiring Mm. power. Not necessarily, no. I think in the first world countries and and the wealthy individuals, perhaps like like you and I, who can who have the time to focus on more of the 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 spiritual definition of freedom. I think in other parts of this world, like when I used to live in Russia, people are making, let's say, $600 a month over there in the city where I live. What, what city were you, were you from in Russia? Uh, it's a city called uh, Astrakhan near the Caspian Sea. It's a, a city you probably never heard of. And it's uh, so essentially Bitcoin allows people the freedom to escape their tyrannical governments, right? If their governments are printing money away and eroding people's savings, because inflation mm. eats away at their buying power, it allows third world countries to become economically relevant. And for me, I think that is one of the biggest first steps that a country has to take in order to become a first world country. You have to give 
a tool to a country that allows it to compete at an equal level to other countries. But if you have countries that are corrupt because their governments are irresponsible with their money, then their citizens never have the opportunity to escape that situation. And so by allowing, so Bitcoin allows those people to have a savings account that participates on a global level. And I think that's a huge, huge freedom aspect of Bitcoin that people in first world countries don't consider because they don't come from third world countries. Although those thresholds are different and like the standard of living is, you know, undeniably higher in a country like the United Kingdom compared to, I don't know, Eritrea, I'm just off the top of my head. Like ultimately there are sort of systems of uh, governance in place regardless of the level of comfort and possibly even like that model of inflation that you've described. I had a conversation with Edward Snowden recently and he was talking about that. He was talking about plain sight conspiracies as opposed to more colourful, vivid conspiracies. Saying, well, look, what about the fact that your money is deteriorating in value until the point where you, you know, and the implication that I took from it, at least, mate, was that it's happening everywhere. But of course, you know, it's happening to me in relative comfort and elsewhere in the world, such, such as you've described, it's happening in more stark conditions. I wouldn't sort of seek to compare. Absolutely. But. Absolutely. Yeah. People, I remember in Zimbabwe, uh, there was there was a year, I don't remember exactly what year, where in 24 hours, their purchasing power was cut in half. So it's everything that their money was buying them now bought them half as much. Wow. And it continued like that for an entire year. I mean, it's it's insane. So I, I think Bitcoin gives people freedom to a lot of people around the world, not not just people to buy Teslas with from Elon Musk. Right, right. You don't just see it as a kind of a luxury currency, but it could potentially be valuable to people that are living outside of the kind of uh, enclaves, cultural enclaves that we understand. But even within these, could it be used as a tool for political power? So one of the things I sometimes think about, I try not to talk about it too often because it's quite radical, but if you really wanted political change, you would create a movement within a country that like, explicitly rejected the laws of that country, refused to participate in the financial system, i.e. saying we're not paying tax anymore, we're not paying mortgages anymore, we declare ourselves to be the state of, you know... Uh, Andre Esquiar or Russell Tonia, like, and Andre Tonia works better. Like then, like, uh, you know, and then if you had Bitcoins, then you would have a resource that was not um, related to centralized state or fun or ordinary financial institutions within with which to trade. I mean, you'd also have the problem of the army turning up and arresting you and throwing you all in jail. But like, do you see it as being a resource that could help people whose objectives were political rather than financial, even though I acknowledge that financial and political objectives are interwoven? Uh, absolutely. I, I That's one of my biggest end goals for Bitcoin is the blockchain aspect of it because of its pseudo anonymity, right? So people think that when, when people use Bitcoin, it's anonymous. Their addresses are displayed, but no one knows who the addresses belong to. The truth is the government would love if you use Bitcoin for illicit activities because it's actually relatively easy for them to allocate resources to try to find who that address belongs to. And that's really great because it gets along with the government. But the better part is if our government, if the central banks started using blockchain technology like Bitcoin to do their transactions, can you imagine the level of transparency we'd have in being able to see where our money gets spent, where our taxpayer dollars go? 
Oh, look at this politician over here. How much money did he take from this corporation? Oh my gosh, wow, we could follow the money. That's what the transparency of the blockchain does that you don't have with regular traditional systems. So in that essence, I think it would absolutely elevate everybody who's on that standard. Oh, that's interesting. So it's not so easy to obscure it. It's one interconnected ecosystem that's accountable to itself at every point at all times, like a super state of potentialities that I think about all the time now. Uh, but like, yep. uh, but but that would, yeah, again, require it being adopted by, that's what I suppose, is that what you think, that it should be adopted as a central currency as opposed to a tangential currency? Absolutely, yes. Whatever, it doesn't have to be Bitcoin necessarily. I'm not saying it, it, the standard will become Bitcoin. Perhaps it could be Ethereum, perhaps it could be something else. But if we use the blockchain, I think that level of transparency is really gonna help us out. Voting, we'd be able to vote properly on the blockchain. So this, 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 this blockchain technology doesn't just apply to the concept of money. Oh. It could apply to a lot of things that I think could use a level of transparency, like, like I said, voting. It, it's a tool for transparency and, and, and it's like for creating ecologies. Right, I've got two. That's right. I've got two questions. What about the NFTs? <laughs> the non-fungible tokens. Tell yeah, me about non-fungible non tokens. tokens. That's right. and, and like I saw Ben Shapiro explain like a, a piece of art is a non-fungible token, but is there an abstract version of this as well in this in the digital world? Gosh, I'm honestly not the best person to talk to about NFTs. We can go really, really deep with NFTs, but NFTs were actually supposed to be used as what are called uh, supply chain authenticators, which is just a fancy word for saying anytime you ordered something online, like let's say a pair of sneakers from Nike, how do you make sure that it's authentic and it's not just a replica of something? Well, you would be able to scan some kind of a barcode and you'd be able to see that on the blockchain, this indeed, this item belongs to this thing. That's what NFTs were supposed to be used for, but they didn't evolve to be that. Instead, they evolved to be pieces of art that artists now create, and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars with when they issue these NFTs, right? These finite limited resources, which are, I suppose, the digital version of a collectible at its essence. That's so amazing, but you have to transpose value to it. But yeah, I appreciate how complex that is. Um, what do you think about the sort of unique relationship between Elon Musk and cryptocurrencies? What's happening with him and that type of coin that I can't say? That's like Dogecoin and what happened on <laughs> yeah, SNL. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so Elon uh, bought a bunch of Bitcoin earlier this year, January or March, bought over a billion dollars worth. Whoa. And then he backtracked saying that no 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 it's centralized it's it's in china which i which i kind of explained how bitcoin is not necessarily centralized that it's difficult to get all the data and what i what i think is going on as far as those people whether it's elon musk or mark cuban or whoever which, whichever influential billionaire i i would say that it's it's just their marketing campaign they're using it as marketing to become relevant like if you talk about dogecoin and you're like hey my store now accepts dogecoin it's the biggest marketing campaign ever because now you have all these news outlets that are going to be picking up that story and talking about it. So I think he's using it as a tool to be relevant on social media and he's just having fun with it. I'm not a billionaire. I don't know how billionaires have fun, but maybe there's some some level of, I suppose, comedy that goes behind being like, oh, I just sold and then seeing billions of dollars just wiped away. I don't know. You think it's just sort of mischief rather than economic yeah. for Elon Musk? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what is, um, tell me, please, if you don't mind, tell me about uh, meme investing. Is that to do with NFTs also? Mm. 
No, not necessarily. Meme investing is Dogecoin is the embodiment of meme investing, right? So, so meme investing is just the concept of of investing in something that's socially relevant and going there. But GameStop was was the biggest one this year, not last year. GameStop, AMC. What else did we have? We had Dogecoin, NFTs, not so much. So, yeah. so it's it's just I and I think the reason that that meme investing has become so so big this year is because people are fed up with their inability to invest in a way that they perhaps understand or seeing these stock markets being manipulated. And it's just like, I don't want any part of that. I'm going to invest in this Dogecoin. I believe in it. It's going to the moon. And it's cool because there's a community behind it. There's there's a whole subreddit community of hundreds of thousands of people who, who in a way, kind of formed their own community. It's like a, a group of mischiefs or bandits, if you will, that kind of rejected the traditional system and said, no, we're not going with that. We're just going to go with something that's more fun, that's way more easier to understand. I don't need to know Sharpay, PE ratios, profit models. Just give me some Doge. That that I can understand. I see. I understand. There is something like, I mean, the word currency obviously implies current, that it's a sort of a transmissible, uh, transmittable demonstration of nowness. So like I can appreciate that, I can appreciate that, it would that would be useful for marketing because it's like you know it's like living zeitgeist but also i think what um what i've taken from our conversation andre about like bitcoin specifically cryptocurrencies more generally the sort of communities that come from it is it does present opportunity simply because it is outside of controlled and structured uh, systems of finance even if within that there are some recognizable traits i.e yeah if you're wealthy you have power you know like that's clear but like like you were saying about the community that cropped up around dogecoin it, in a sense it shows that it's plausible that different types of currencies could be established between different communities and could create sort of non-geographical community like if me and a whole bunch of other people decided we'll all accept this unit of currency and you're in charge of this type of food production i'm in charge of this type of energy construction you could create parallel alternative currency models that are separate from the dominator for dominant forces of world economics absolutely did you see gosh i wish i remembered the island name but there was somebody who bought an island who was just going to create their own society just structured based on gosh what was it? libertarianism mm. so it was just their their own plan their own model i forget the island name but it's kind of an interesting concept you might want to look into yeah i think about that kind of stuff all the time you know i try not to get drawn off down the cult direction because it never goes well does it the, the cult or maybe <laughs> sure, we don't read true. about it when it goes well we only read about the ones where the fbi turn up and everyone is mown down but like uh you know, I'm interested, as you you know, Andre, in creating different systems. And it seems to me that it's like with the the problem is, it seems to me or not problem or uh, uh, it seems to me at the moment what dominates the ideology around Bitcoin is comparable to the ideologies around conventional finance acquisition, personal freedom through finance. And you pointed out that some people that's that kind of reality is more desirable because they're outside of the kind of economic strata that Western folk are in. 
But like, um, I, I suppose, though, it could bear the ideology of whatever was inserted into its DNA. It could be about collectivism. It could be about creating communities that were designed to be, you know, what I want to say, sort of truly democratic. Absolutely. And you have to understand that right now, the reason there are so many parallels and similarities to Bitcoin with the traditional finance system is because that's who who's trying to understand it. We're still trying to understand what this technology is. We still haven't figured it out. M money as a concept is still very much this fluid concept that we're still trying to figure out. So th the fact that Bitcoin bears some similarity does not necessarily mean that it's a not viable alternative to creating a different kind of system. It just means we're trying to understand it through the lens and the scope of what we currently know about our markets, but not necessarily what it really is. That's a really important philosophical point that we impose reality on the novel, but we bring to bear our experience on it and then it seems to be behaving in the same way precisely because Absolutely. of our prejudice. That's cool, Andre. Andre, thank you so much for explaining that to me in such a good-humoured, graceful and easy-to-understand way and also by giving me a personal magic show throughout all of it, <laughs> just as an side Appreciate it. Effect. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Thank you. Are you going to buy some Bitcoin? Shall I buy some <laughs> Bitcoin? Do you think I should? I was thinking I of think buying some and then giving it away as a prize, like uh, online. You know, people would... There's a, there's a really good way of going about doing that, actually, which I, I can explain later. But you should buy, I'll say, let's say 1% of your net worth. No more than 1%. And just maybe hold it and just forget about it. Just pretend you lost it. Just hang on to it. Really? That's what you'd recommend for anyone? And then, okay, and then like 1% of net worth, good, good. Then like, uh, and then and then sort of, and then beyond that, maybe I'll do something where for my, ch for my channel, maybe, maybe me and you can do it online. We'll acquire something that will be meaningful to the communities that you're an expert in and give them away on some incurious and interesting basis. The, the, yeah, definitely something interesting there. The best person at using this trapeze should be given. Now, I hope you all were concentrating in trapeze lessons and not dicking around reading the Die Jones and, and, and hoping to be the new Wolf of Wall Street. Go stick that landing. <laughs> That's cool. Andre, cool. thanks, man. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Jen, what did you make of that? I heard, why did you just tell me? Do you think I forgot the outro? Yeah. I hadn't. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Andre Jick. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at russellbrand.com. Tweet me at rustyrockets. Hashtag under the skin. And, uh, you know, just just try your best. Are you okay? Huh? Are you okay? Yeah, thanks. I got suddenly out of wave of time. <laughs> remember, to get, uh, to remember to meditate and above the noise. Sign up to my mailing list. And if you like this, listen to Tristan Harris or Jason Hickle, any of those guys. And now another jingle from our resident jingle creator, Justin Hawkins. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Russell.